Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to bring to you presentations from the 2018 RipperCon Jack the Ripper and True Crime Conference from Baltimore, Maryland in the USA. The following speaker is Chris Jones, one of the foremost researchers on the lives of James and Florence Maybrick. Mr. Jones is the author of the Maybrick A to Z and organizer of the 2007 trial of James Maybrick. His talk is entitled, The Maybricks of Liverpool. The biggest problem I have today is simply that there's two stories, they're both immense, I could do a whole day on each one, I've got an hour to do both of them, so I'm going to have to whiz through this a bit too quickly. Second problem is that some of you in this room know vast amounts about the Maybricks, and the Ripper, and some of you know absolutely nothing about the Matrix. So I'm going to work on the assumption that people don't know anything. So I'm just not going to patronise people, it's easy, easy that way. Because I've done it in the past, I've assumed people knew things and we did, and it didn't work. So we've got two stories. Yeah, I'm closing it down, it's not, it's not responding. So. There's two stories. The first story is about the woman, Florence Matrix. She was involved in a, a very, very famous trial, and it was a very famous trial, and it, made, it caused a huge change in the English legal system as a result of it. She was an American woman, much younger than her husband, and she was convicted of his murder. To this day, she is the only American woman ever to be found guilty of murder in Britain. Uh, it became a very famous international case. Three American presidents got involved, Queen Victoria got involved, Headlines across the world. I'll talk a bit about that first. And then a hundred years later, the second story, a diary was found, allegedly written by him, in which he supposedly confesses to be Jack the Ripper. And in the world of Ripperology, that has caused a massive schism. Some people think it is definitely him, and everybody else thinks it's definitely not him. And sometimes you can have quite phased debates and on the casebook. Sometimes reflects that. It's one of the reasons they don't go on it very often. <laughs> Some of the debate is very sterile and very rude. Um, so I, I, I will uh, talk about that bit second. I'll just take that off. So if we, if we jump to the first then of my imaginary talk. There he is. There's James. James is there. Top left hand side. James was born in Liverpool in October 1838. He was born in Liverpool, as I said, in this street here, Church Alley, not Liverpool at all. This, is, this church is now gone. Uh, Obviously, it's gone. It's now part of what they call Liverpool One, the big new shopping centre. Uh, this street, you need Chris, that's part of Blue Coat. The Blue Coat is still there, so if you yeah. on this picture here, the Blue Coat is there, that's, that's, that was a school for poor children. That still stands now, it's now a sort of arts and culture centre. Yeah, it's like okay. a 1750s era building. Yeah, right. it's still a pretty spectacular building, but the rest yeah. of all this is gone. James lived there, so how many would, would say that was a sort of lower middle class? His father was the clerk. Of the church there, that's an Anglican church. 
And that was the most important Anglican church in Liverpool at the time. But when they built this Anglican cathedral, they knocked that down. Um, there were five brothers. One of the brothers became internationally famous. That's Michael on there. He was, he was a very famous singer and he composed as well. He wrote the music but not the words. One of his songs, The Holy City, became a, a huge international seller in the 19th century. He was, he was, a, he was a big, well-known, famous guy. James, in 1858, we've gone very quickly, moves down from Liverpool down to London. Now, some of this is going to come back to a little bit later on because when he was in London, he actually lived in Whitechapel and he worked near Whitechapel, bang in the middle of where the kids took place, but pretty close, and he would have been familiar with the area. While he was there, he brought a, a very close relationship with this woman here, Sarah, Sarah Ann Robinson. Now, she's a mysterious character, I'm still doing some research on. There is there is one book, the Doodle book, suggests that they were married and had five children. But nobody's found any record of a marriage certificate or any record of the children. However, the Bible was found by Keith Skinner, one of the really old girls, who some page did of, who found in an inscription in it to her from her affectionate husband. So, anyway, she's got this relationship. 1871, not back in Liverpool, in the census he stands being single. 1873, he sets up uh, a company with his brother, a cotton, cotton trader, and as a result, he spent half the year in America, in Norfolk, Virginia. I did quite a bit of research, incredible house in Norfolk, Virginia. He lived in this house on York Street, when we pictured it in it. It's not that picture from a mini book, and I tracked it down when I was there. When he was there, he was known to frequent uh, an establishment run by a lady who was of ill repute. So we've got a guy now, the new white chapel, we've got a guy now who is known to frequent brothels and spend time with prostitutes. Also, quite significantly for the story, when he was in America, he contracted malaria. Now, the first treatment they gave him was quinine, wasn't successful, so they gave him arsenic. So he now started along the route of taking arsenic. And the trouble with that, apart from it being a dangerous drug, you build up a tolerance level, so you have to take more and more and more. Um, so there's, there's a little bit of background on it. Just went to Florence. There's Florence, a picture taken of when she was 19. There's her mother, I could go all just her mother, she's another interesting character. Um, she moved from the north, she was born in Massachusetts, but she married a southern guy and they lived in Mobile, Alabama. The books will tell you that's her, her house, it's not her house, that's where her husband, first husband, lived. And Florence was born in 1862. She was actually born in September, her father had died in July of 1862. And this fingers were pointed at the white. Now that was probably because I got very quick. Right next slide. Thank you. It was probably because 1862, there was a civil war going on. She was from the north. She wasn't very popular with women down there anyway. Uh, and it was going to be worse. 
she remarried within a year to a dashing uh, northerner, but was fighting for the Confederacy, uh, Captain Hugh Barry. Um, and within a year, he died as well. Uh, although that was, I've, I've done a lot of work on that, helped by my friend, uh, good friend at the back there, Dan. And we tracked down in, in the war records, and it's pretty good of war wounds, not anything else. They escape the deep south, go to live in Europe, where she marries for a third time, a Prussian baron, uh, and that doesn't last that long either, but she's now become a baroness, so she's Baroness de Rock. Because um, they travel a lot, because her parents still lived in, in, in New York, they travel a lot across the Atlantic, they were on this boat in 1880, and Warren, who's then uh, 17, that James, who was in his 40s, within a year, they were married. Now, lots of things you can say about the marriage, and, and lots of the books speculate. It, it seems to me, this James, this is a man who's changed the habits of his lifetime. It's a dramatic change for him. So, I, I, I work on the assumption, therefore, that he actually liked it and they fell in love. Um, I don't know that for a fact, but all the other little bits and pieces, we don't have enough time to say the circumstantial evidence points that way. And we certainly know, for the early years of their marriage, from, from, because there's quite a lot of documents about that, that they seem to have been contented. So if we jump to the next slide then. Married in 1881, they spent half the year in Norfolk, Virginia, and they stayed in the cotton season. Uh, and then they spent half the year back in Liverpool. They seemed to live a very quiet life. They seemed to get on well. They had, they had a son uh, and had a daughter that lived in 1886. James was a popular guy. All the records show that he was a popular guy. Uh, and he was made a director of the North Economy Exchange. He was a pretty precise state and respect. Then they moved back to Liverpool. In 1884, permanently. Sorry, to go back more, to go back more, please. And they moved into this house in Beechwood, which is still standing, and they lived there for, for a couple of years. But then in 1887, things started to go wrong, and they started to go wrong big time. Now, part of this is speculation, part of it is that I've got some documents to show for this. Uh, first of all, he's been taking drugs. Not just arsenic, he's been taking strychnine and he takes a whole host of other drugs. And whatever drugs he's given, he doubles. So, this is a man whose body was now beginning to feel the effects of long term serious drug abuse. He was beginning to age. The gap between them was beginning to become more noticeable. His health was beginning to deteriorate. And also, in 1887, Florence found that he was paying money to another woman. Now, I've got time to go to all that, but obviously that was a huge schism in the marriage, you can imagine. She was, she was shocked, she was disgusted, she was upset, she was angry. Who the other woman is, is never named, but Sarah Ann Robinson is still around. And I know I've shown this as well, that she was living in Liverpool at that time. So maybe she was the scorned woman, she'd come up to Liverpool. And we do know from the time of the trial of a woman She's mentioned, but not her name, actually had some of Florence's jewellery and clothes. So, you know, it's not too far to suggest that we probably should have had one too. 
Either way, the manager has gone. Or one. If you hit enter, you'll just progress from slide to slide. Okay. 
James is suddenly getting worse and worse and worse. And then he was caught with fly papers. Now fly papers contain arsenic. And he put them, soaked them in water, and he could extract the arsenic. And it, it, it was a famous murder case in 1884 when a woman had actually chewed actually killed members of their family with arsenic extracted from fly papers. Now, arsenic was also used as a cosmetic in the base white. And we know that that's actually, you know, and the, the amount that she could have extracted anyway was minuscule. You couldn't have killed a man who was used to heavy doses of arsenic anyway. And she, did, she didn't even hide it. It was on show. But, once again, you can see this was circumstantial evidence beginning to build up against her. And then something crucial happens, now that I'm simplifying this on an awful lot. There's one crucial incident. This is the bedroom, you can see the bed there, the matrix bedroom, and then there's a smaller bedroom, the dressing room, but come back to that room a little bit later. Uh, since 1887, James spent a lot of his time in the other bedroom, the smaller bedroom, called the, the dressing room there. But when he was ill, he was in the main bed there. When James's brother receives a telegram that James is being poisoned or some stuff, serious thing, mysterious, mysterious things going on, he dashes up and he gets professional nurses in to look after James. And Florence is, even though it's her own house, was treated very, very badly. You know, you've got to feel sorry for this one, don't you? It's a tale of tragic tale. James is in bed. There's a professional nurse, Nurse Gore. She opens this bottle of beet juice, comes from Richmond, Virginia. It was used as a sort of cure oil. Uh, and if you go to Richmond, Virginia, you can still see the place there. Now you came from it and everything. That's the one that's actually in Scotland Yard and Germany, the photograph in the museum. The nurse opens up the bottle, gives some to James. Florence comes in the room. She picks up the bottle in a mysterious and in a hidden way, but pretty obvious in this course. She wasn't the most of the for Florence. Takes it into the dressing room out of sight and puts something in. And she does put something in. That bottle was taken by the nurse to James's brother Michael and it was tested and it contained arsenic. Who put that arsenic in? Florence. Now, James never took any of that arsenic because it was taken away. And Florence said she took the arsenic, she didn't know what it was, it was a white powder, she only put it in because her husband begged her to. Which is probably likely because he was craving the drug. Uh, but that was the most important, pivotal thing in the case, really. And it counted against her that she actually put something in it, and it was arsenic, even though it didn't need to take it. So, oops, I will go backwards, please. Can I go back? That's fine. So I went to trials. If you can still, if you're in Liverpool, you can actually go into this courtroom, Mr. Jackie. So you can actually, you can go, this, you can go in the holding cells below, and you can walk through the cells, all stuff on the wall about Florence, and you can actually walk up. This is a little, there's a round um, stairwell there, and you come up and you can stand in the dock. 
Um, it was used for criminal courts in, in Liverpool right up until the 1970s, but now we've got new law courts there. So it's all open, it's all free as well. Go around. Um, huge crowds every day schemed in. Um, the Lord Lieutenant of Liverpool's neck that day. This, this was a big case in the day. People get, because she was an American, there were lots of Germans from America as well. It's headline stories right across the world. Certainly Britain and America. And she was on trial for seven days. The case against was put forward that James, although he was a hypochondriac, was basically a strong and healthy man, who was gradually poisoned by his wife, who had a clear motive. The fact that she spent the night with Rayleigh in the hotel gave the prosecution the motive. She wanted to kill her husband, and she wanted to be with a younger, better looking, <laughs> nicer guy. I actually wasn't a nice guy, I've got no time to be so But uh, either way, he gave the motive. Two chemists in Liverpool said that Lawrence had bought the fly papers. From the fly papers, they could extract uh, one to two and a half grains of arsenic. It takes take about two grains of arsenic. Kill a person that they're not used to. Nurse Jack tells a story about pouring the bottle, taking the bottle out and things being poured into it. And also, let's have a simplify some of this. When they went through Florence's clothes, they found arsenic on bits of nipple. That's probably because of the cosmetic way she was doing it. But they also found a trunk in which there was a massive amount of arsenic. And that trunk was her trunk. Now, it didn't, that wasn't known at the time, but later on, an American guy called Valentine Blake said that he sold James a lot of arsenic. So, but he didn't, come, he didn't know about the trial at the time, so he didn't come forward. Once again, there's the arsenic, and it's in Florence's possession, supposedly anyway. Not looking too good for him. There's the nurse Gorham talked about the, the bottles being switched or suspiciously taken out. One of the dark the doctors said that she'd been poisoned, that James had been poisoned by arsenic. There's no doubt about it. He said that the fatal dose had been given on the 3rd of May. Now, I think it's going to be significant later on. And then from London comes up this guy, he was one of the top government. And was, he was, you know, in his day, he was seen as the expert. He said, I have no doubt that this man died from the effects of arsenic. Although, they, after he died, they did do an autopsy on him. And they found that the amount of arsenic in him was less than one hundredth of what was considered to be a fatal dose. In fact, you could argue, ironically, some people have, is in the end what killed him was that he didn't get the lack of arsenic because he thought he was relying upon it rather than he had to do it. That's what I think. I actually believe that's part of it, but I believe it is the effect of all the drugs he took. He, he, was, he killed himself, basically, slowly but surely. Case of the defence. First of all, they established that James was a regular user of arsenic. Uh, they, they brought people over from America. We lived in New York Street, I showed you the house. 
shows that he used it in his, in his tea as a remedy for malaria. He took arsenic and strychnine by order of Dr. Wood. This guy here, the testifying chemist, that James would come in between two and five times a day for a pick-me-up. And pick-me-up contained arsenic. It was sort of seen as a cross between cocaine and Viagra, if you want, like, you know, <laughs> a simple analogy. And then this other guy, Thompson, said that he, James had told him he wasn't feeling well because of the double dose of his medicine, which was strictly. So the defence had established that James was a user of arsenic. So if there was any arsenic in him, he put them himself. They also brought in some of their own medical experts. So this is the guy, James, but he, 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 he testified that arsenic was used for women uh, for cosmic reasons. Because they had to cover that base as well. Because why did she buy the flower papers? She bought the flower papers for an infection. Two Doctors, actually, the, the three doctors of the defense actually said they didn't even die of arsenic kill anyway. That's not really bad of. Um, and this particular one told the court that there were four key symptoms of arsenic poison. They don't list them all there, and these symptoms were either absent or not typical in the case of James. So, what did he die of? According to these doctors, gastroenteritis. Didn't even die of arsenic So, whether she did it, I don't think she did it. But whether she did it or not, there's a huge doubt, massive doubt. She should have been found innocent, but she was found guilty. Well, Chris, I mean, one of the things is that intestinal problems, you know, are quite a number of different uh, causes. And it's very hard to tell, you know, whether it's poison or whether they ate something. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, you know. it, it, it's, you're right, it, it, this is the point I made, but I don't want to go to all of the medical stuff. It's just a question of doubt. So why was she found guilty? Yeah. Okay, well, I'm, the, 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 the reason why she was found guilty, first of all, the judge, or Justice Stephen, was undoubtedly biased. He's summing up. Well, he, he was also a mentor. Uh, he, he was, it was his last big case, and he, right. he, he, he deteriorated after that. And during the case, he did get mixed up all the dates and events. I, I, think, I don't think it's fair to say he was mental, but I do think well, it's fair to say on the verge of he, he, he was certainly not his best. Yeah. But he was, what he certainly also was, he was definitely biased. He believed that this woman who morally sinned was therefore capable of crime. Huge jump. Um, but that's, and it, everything about him is something that was totally biased against him. I have a similar case to that. Chris, I'm going to stop you because I'm going to get through two big talks and I haven't got enough time. I do apologise because I'm after that at the end. I didn't have 30 seconds to be a bit rough there. But I'm definitely trying to finish all this. You just beat me to it. Yeah. This, these, two, these two women were the two women who got hanged in Liverpool for killing people with arsenic extracted from flower paper. That was in people's forefront of people's mind. You know, once something big like that happens, you know, it's there. The jury, the, the medical information was pretty complicated and confusing, and the judge said to the jury, they were mostly just working men, don't bother me. But the thing that really stood against her, this, that letter I mentioned before, the thing that really stood against her was that she got in the dock, because you weren't allowed to give, uh, at that time you weren't allowed to be interviewed, but she gave a statement. 
because she admitted in a statement that she did add something to James's reduce. It was a huge, massive mistake. And it cost her. She was found guilty and sentenced to be hanged. There was a massive outcry all in Britain, in Liverpool, and in America. Huge miscarriage of justice. Not all was appeal in those days. So as a result, the Home Secretary intervened and he said, although she wasn't guilty of murder, she did try to commit it. Now that's attempted murder, which is a different charge. So she should be should, that doesn't doesn't stand up, but he changed it to life in prison. So she went. She went to prison for 15 years. She spent the first uh, section of that in walking prison. The first nine months she spent in a cell seven foot by five foot. And she told she wouldn't allow to speak. Uh, and make five shirts a week. You know, this is a woman who was pretty well off. You know, they had links to. Uh, the mother and the, uh, the relative, or distant relative, of an American president, John Quincy Adams. So this, this is like a well, fair play to her. She stuck it out. And she spent 15 years in prison. She wasn't released until after the death of Queen Victoria. Queen Victoria was totally against the full stop. Queen Victoria dies. Her son, his, her son enters the seventh becomes king. And she does get released, but she's never pardoned. Some of the books will tell me she was pardoned, she was never pardoned. She returned to America and she was a celebrity. And she did speaking tours. And then for a while, she lived in, in just north of Chicago, in a place called Highland Park, where Dan and I have done some work there as well. Um, but she ran out of money. But one of her relatives gave some money. So she lived the last 20 years of her life in that little shack in Connecticut. That's gone now. I've been to that. I've been to that road there. She didn't have any running water or electricity or anything. That's where she lived for the last 20 odd years of her life. Um, she became quite erratic in the behaviour of children. She couldn't understand. She never saw children again. The two children, the day they took her and put her in jail, she never saw children again. She did try to reach out to them, but I think their minds have been poisoned. By uh, James's brothers, uh, and they wouldn't have anything to do with She, The only people really had much to do with was a local school, and the, the, the school and their weapons, fantastic character there as well. Loads of resources as well. Then. And as a result, she's buried actually in the school ground, they've got a chapel there. Uh, she died in 1941. But on that day, in 1889, her life just changed. Whatever. It also had a profound effect on English law, and it led this case in the main book and some other cases led to a change in English law. So we now have a court of appeal, uh, and this is used as an example of a clear miscarriage of justice. And as I say, it's summarised now really quickly. I missed that big chunk, but it really was a huge story in its day, and there's a lot of people still interested. There's lots of books written on it. There's a Hollywood film script uh, prepared for this, 
And the, the famous director William Friedkin, um, there's, there's something, some litigation or whatever. There's a lot of people want to be involved. I get these weird like uh, emails from people, Johnny Depp and William Friedkin, asking these questions, putting them in books. William Friedkin had the best issues. He couldn't come to one of my events because he was in the Berlin for the Mike Orchestra. So that could have been the end of the story. And now I'm going to have to just leave him quicker. And then, all of a sudden, on the 9th of March, 1992, 100 years earlier after the trial, this diary found, which is called the Ripper Diary. Now, it's not actually really a diary. It's more of a, somebody writing down their thoughts. It was brought to the attention of the world by a guy called Mike Barrett, who I met him it was uh, erratic sort of that was the end of it. I, I of course became a serious alcoholic. Um, but spent a bit of time with him. The diary is kept in London by a guy called Robert Smith, who bought it off Paris. And the end of the diary you can see there, yours truly, Jack the Ripper, signed the 3rd of May, which is just before it. That was the day. Um, you remember I referred before when Dr. Carter said that James received his, his final polygamy. Uh, a year later, the watch appeared, the Maybrick watch, by a totally different person, Albert Johnson, who's now sat in the head down, like Miles there, for all these people have done. Uh, Albert Johnson died years ago now after his funeral. Uh, the watch has got you just see a possibly there, James Maybrick, written on it. I am Jack, and it's got the, the initials of the five chemical figures um, that you were talking about earlier on. Now, this is actually more of a mystery than anything else. I don't know anybody who can explain this. Albert Johnson, you can see it's a glass of office watches, that is important, but Albert Johnson paid for it, paid for it himself to be scientifically tested. This has been scientifically tested twice, on both occasions, the engravings are said to be old. He said he bought it in a jewelry shop. Um, somebody, an American guy, I can't remember his name now, offered him over £40,000 for a watch, and he didn't sell it. Now, if, if he's a crook, and I've met him many times, he said he bought the crook in my opinion, he was a crook. Well, he would have taken the money with me. He wouldn't have had a scientific test and he would have done it. I thought, that's a genuine mystery. So, to everybody that's now signed up, we've got this diary, the Ripper diary. Not long after the Hitler diary came out, it was forged. The Ripper world wouldn't buy into this at all. So, following on my mind, if I see you being yesterday, if I do anything properly, fairly, I'm going to go through these quite quickly. Is, is it the real thing or not? And I've given these headings the paper, the ink, the handwriting, the profile, the provenance, the historic privacy, and some other issues. Could it possibly be the genuine thing? And there are people up there, quite a lot of people, by the way, who believe it is a genuine thing. And there are people up there, there's a guy from the same week next week from Belfast, Jake Johnson, who's determined by He thinks it is, and he's doing work. He wants to track down. Electricians and people are still working on this big time. Keep seeing this as well. There's a lot of people think it's genuine thing. I'm doubtful, but open minded like. I'm going to go through these things. First of all, we can do a little checklist very quickly. 
Okay, the paper. Is the paper, the paper, is, is it contemporaneous? Does it could come from Victorian periods? And the answer to that is yes, probably does. It's very similar in content, style, everything to a Victorian scrapbook. Probably used for putting in pictures. Um, okay. On the other hand, if you really look at it, would you screw your inhouse thoughts down on a scrapbook? Either way, is the paper old enough? The answer is yes, it is. It's a Victorian scrapbook, it's from the time. What about the ink? Well, this, I think you can do a whole day just on the ink. The, the, the ink has been tested numerous occasions. Two big tests. First of all, the chemical content of the ink. Does it contain modern chemicals? So that would be easy to show to forgery. Also, you can do a test to try and work out when the ink was actually put on the paper. Uh, sadly, all those tests, and there have been many, many of them, are very contradictory. There have been some tests, which is said on by this guy in America, in Chicago, who said it's a forgery, it's a hoax. But there have been other tests that have said that the ink is not incompatible with what was at the time and could well be a proper Victorian ink. So it's a bit, so far it's still a bit of a dead end, and I think we need to do some more tests on that. This test by the Rendell team actually said the ink was old, but it was from 1921 when it was put off. You know, I'm going to come back to that a little bit later on. So the view was it was either the real thing or a modern forgery. Well, I think there's another possibility that it's a forgery, but an old one, not modern one. But it's, it's been all right, you know, it's, 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 the bottom line is the ink tests are contradictory. What about the handwriting? Well, the handwriting of the diary does not match the handwriting of James Bailey, full stop. We've got examples, there's his will, some people think he didn't write his will, and he did. But we've had other examples of James Bailey's handwriting. He, he was in his, his, involved in a long-running court case uh, to do with some property that was owned by his, his wife's family, and we have letters from him. There's a, are yours truly there? Are yours truly there? But the handwriting is clearly different. Well, of course, you could say, oh, it's not an issue, because he could have disguised his handwriting. Why would he disguise his handwriting if he's saying, it's me? Because, you know, it's not only the battle case. These are my kids. Everything about it is not disguising. You only disguise your handwriting if you disguise who you are. Believe me. It doesn't matter if you were James, but he mentioned his wife and his kids and his house, where he is. So, handwriting is, to those people who think it's, 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 it's the genuine article, is a major stumbling block. Okay, what about the profile? We talked a bit before about criminal profiling this morning. Uh, once again, it's possible. First of all, James Maybrick worked. So, he did he visit London? Yes, he did. He went to London quite regularly for business and to see his brother. And he went at the weekend. 
Um, so, I, one of the arguments you said before with the hackers being illogical. I don't think he did. He could have travelled, but he would have had to be there at the weekend. Um, Professor, he does say in the the person who wrote the diary said he took a, a, a flat in Middlesex Street, and Professor Cantor, who did some geographical profiling, actually pinpointed Middlesex Street as the centre of the crime. So it does fit in with that particular pattern. Uh, we know James used prostitutes. We also know at the time of the River Killings, his mind was going seriously wrong. He'd been to the doctor more than 20 times, and he'd also been to Preston in Britain called where the spa trying to cover. So he was like, he, he was in turmoil. Maybe, although you can't prove this, that his wife had an affair earlier than this, we know it's happened. Uh, but criminal psychologists have looked at the, the wording of, of, the, of the, the diary, that's not the diary, it's a confessional, whatever you want to call it, and said Professor Borshaw would use on balance of probabilities if this was authentic. So, if you're going to pick, if you're going to, uh, uh, some people have known some of this, is. so if it is a forgery, some people, I don't know if it's a crude forgery. I'll tell you what, if it is a forgery, it's certainly not a crude one, it's an extremely clever one, and the person who wrote it was actually therefore very lucky, because he probably, he or she wrote it, wouldn't have known half these things. Uh, that, that was the third book to flat in. The James did travel to London. The James knew Whitechapel. Okay, but the, the, the biggest issue you've got to deal with is how come something appeared in 1992? Where did it be? Now, this is where there's been a lot of new work, and this is what's going on. It's one of the reasons why I was actually there a couple of weeks ago, or back on five weeks ago, before the museum. Um, that date, the 9th of March 1992. Paul Dodd, who owns the house, lived in that part of the house at that time. This bit of the house is outside the water, it was cold, so he decided that he needed some storage heaters. On the 9th of March 1992, Three new storage heaters were put in, and they're there marked on, on, on the first. Three brand new storage heaters. To get to the storage heaters, you obviously need electricity. There's the, 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 the main fuse box. So, electricians in the morning, there's a timesheet, this is a tenth there, it was, it was done overnight. On the morning of the night, pulled up the floorboards. On the afternoon of the 9th of March, 1992, a guy who said he was Michael Williams, but it was Michael Barrett, rings London and says he's got the diary of Jack the Ripper. Same day. How could he got different signs on the Well, one of the electricians who worked, who wasn't actually on the timesheet, I'm pretty sure he visited the house that day, drunk in the same pub as sat with him, the other side of Liverpool, where um, my father jumped. So there's now a hypothesis. I'm not, you make up your own mind on this, but the hypothesis is this. Where was it for 100 years? 
This is James's room. He hid it under the floorboards. March 1992, floorboards are lifted. Electricians take something, maybe they don't wash it well, maybe. <coughs> don't know that, but this is the hypothesis. They take it, what are we going to do? We need to get some money. One of the guys, oh, I this guy called Barrett, who says he's a bit of a writer, Boston, but he says he is. We'll sell it. Give 25 quid. Off he goes. He looks at it, he sees yours truly, Jack the Ripper. This might be it. Okay. So he rings London, but he's not sure. So he gives the wrong name, Michael Williams. And he doesn't go down to London five years, it's another five weeks before he goes down. This time we know he's done some research. Now, this is where a lot of work's been going on at the moment. This is why James Johnson's coming to see me next week and we're going back in there. You go around all these things. There's lots of things wrong with this hypothesis, by the way. First of all, some of these people who might be saying they're academics, they've never put the floorboards in their life. Floorboards are quite difficult to pull up, especially on the 3rd of May when you're actually not very well. The floorboards in that house are put in with cast iron nails. Cast iron nails mean snap. Not the non steel nails. It's actually a big, difficult job to pull up the floorboards with the cast iron nail and put them all back in a house full of people without anybody noticing. Like I said to you, Google cast iron nails. Um, now, I'm not saying the hypothesis is right or wrong. You have to make it your own mind. But it isn't the coincidence. If we say if we say that that is coincidence, then we have to explain it somehow. Now I've got my own views on that, but I'm still working on that. But for the people who believe that the diary may be real, not just because it's written by James, by the way, it doesn't mean he was Jacobin. He could have just written it anyway, but some people do write sort of things, don't they? You know, he could have just written it anyway. But for the people who believe that the diary might be real, this is a really important piece of new evidence. And there's a lot of debate on that at the moment on the case before we go into all that. Uh, and let's get some, some nice words. The electricians have denied publicly taking it because it's counted to take something from his house. Uh, they're all still alive. James spoke to a few of them and we're hoping to go and see Mr. Rigby in two weeks' time. Two weeks out. Uh, hoping. Okay, there are, there, there, are, there are other things in the diary which I've got from very, very simply. First of all, the diary has got, it's, there are a couple of, couple of lines that are quite important. The diary says Sir Jim, Sir Jim, on all 30 occasions. Now, we now know, because of stuff that they found uh, in the Trevor Christie collection, that James actually used to be called Sir Jim. Whoever wrote the, the diary either knew that and knew him, because maybe it was him, but they were pretty unlucky to come up with that phrase, Sir Jim. Um, but on the other hand, there are problems. The diary says, I started, what it says, I started in the post house. Post house in Cumberland Street, you know, the post, well, the post house wasn't called the post house. This is a picture of it in 1888, and it's called the Muckbin. A completely different name. Um, there's, there's, there's other. There's other mistakes. There's a big debate about certain words. Were they in use at that time? Uh, I won't go into all the nuances, but there are issues with it. One of the most important lines in it 
is the phrase, maybe it's in the book, tin much box empty. Now, from the other Canada Caponellos, the police made a list of all the things that were found on their body. That was not published until 1987. It was published in one of the, one of the books, um, I find it on the screen by the Man, it wasn't in the man. Have a look at this here. This is the police record. Tin matchbox empty. Tin matchbox empty. Cigarette case. It's, it's, it's almost like I've got the copy there. And also, you've got to remember, they can't even write this way. The person who did like a few years of phrases on it, efficient killing sheet. This person was. He didn't have very much time. There was two policemen going around. There was a night watchman. But he really killed this person, and then sort of painstakingly gone through all the protections. To some people, that's the most important line that said it's definitely important. And to more than both. But there are other bits in it as well that you can show as copies. So, for instance, there's an extract of the diary full of documents, but he did very little the matter with him. Very little the matter wrong with him. Very little the matter. There's other bits that I found. I've, I've done a lot of work on this using old books and modern books. And with, that, with the exception of this you, you can copy, you can get all that information. Okay, there are other, other major issues which I'll run through incredibly quickly. I'm start chronology. Motive. He was, he was supposed to have killed Florence but had an affair. The Ripper Miracle Killings took place in 1888. Florence didn't begin her affair until 1889. Now, some people said, well, we could start earlier. We don't. We, I don't think it did. Um, we know maybe it was quite aggressive. Would he have lied his wife to have an affair? I don't think so. There, 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 there is a letter. Uh, in which he's, somebody writes, he said, he's going to club shoots a guy because he heard about what happened in, in the hotel in London. I don't think really just stood by him or out of the hand. Uh, Mary Kelly's murder, which we mentioned before, early on, was, was a savage, brutal killing. James Maybrick lived for another six months. It, surely, if the person was still alive, they would have kept on killing. I know some serial killers go in and out. But that Mary Kelly one is so horrendous. There's other mistakes in the diary. Uh, there's this one here is that we, we, found, we only found this out recently that in December 1888, James Maybrick actually did jury duty in the Now, this is a guy who pulls scorn on the police and the legal system. He doesn't mention it. I, 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 if, you were, if you were that straight in mind, you would have loved mocking the police. There I am, most. Was killer in British history. I'm on the jury. Oh, I just don't think he would. I don't see he, he, he would have missed that opportunity. So, to finish, was Florence guilty of murder? No, definitely not. And even if she was, she shouldn't be found guilty. There was that much doubt and evidence. And was James maybe Jack the Ripper? No. <laughs> I have to tell you, I am still open-minded. 
I'm, I'm not going to tell you that's a, a sort of big branch stuck out of me, a big face, big knob. It's possible, but in my mind, very unlikely. But there's evidence still out there that can be collected that will either prove definitively that he was, or wasn't, I'm very confident that he was, but it's maybe more suggestive. Or we might find, for instance, on one of the days of the killing, yes, that's an alibi. And we do know, for instance, if Margaret Cabram, not one of the characters, but one of the possible people who think was killed by that, remember, he definitely had an alibi for that, because he was at his dinner, he'd been to the races all day and he was at his dinner. He definitely didn't kill Margaret Cabram. But if Margaret Cabram was at the victim, he's not that good. Either way, <coughs> it's no way to know. Who is But I do take you back slightly. And that was Chris Jones with the Maybricks of Liverpool. Thank you to Chris Jones, Makita Brotman, and Christopher George for making all of the guest speaker talks from the 2018 Rippercon Convention in Baltimore available. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference presentations, all about Jack the Ripper, East End history, and Victorian and Edwardian crimes. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcast releases, you can contact us on the Casebook message boards or find us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for RipperCast. I would like to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.